I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Friday, April 17th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dr. Phil was on the Laura Ingram Fox show last night as an expert for what I can only assume to be the selection of a jury for Laura's upcoming trial. I'm going to say running a fraudulent multi-level marketing scheme because, you know, Dr. Phil is a psychiatrist. If he's asked for his expertise, jury selection is what he is an expert in. No, instead, he was given the floor to say this. 250 people a year die from poverty. And the poverty line is getting such that more and more people are going to fall below that because the economy is crashing around us. And they're doing that because people are dying from the coronavirus. I get that. But look, the fact of the matter is we have people dying. 45,000 people a year die from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarettes, 360,000 a year from swimming pools. But we don't shut the country down for that. But yet we're doing it for this. And the fallout is going to last for years because people's lives are being destroyed. That was Dr. Phil on the Ingram angle. The angle, if you were wondering, is obtuse. Now, I don't want to focus on the parts of the argument that many other observers were interested in, i.e. the dissimilarity between coronavirus and a well-documented long-term health outcome of voluntarily engaging in a carcinogenic pastime right? Smoking. Or the dissimilarity between coronavirus policy and traveling in a metal capsule at speeds in excess of 30 miles an hour, which isn't good for the old meat bag. They are dissimilar. The dissimilarities have been noted. More into the swimming pools. Let's hear what Dr. Phil said again. 360,000 a year from swimming pools. 360,000 people die every year in American swimming pools, not drowning in bathtubs, which are most swimming pool deaths among very small children, but drown in swimming pools. Considering most swimming occurs in summer, it means that during the months of June, July, and August, over 100,000 Americans would be drowning during each of those months. I mean, there's an extra 60,000 left over. We could assign those to the shoulder months or the swimming that is done in Florida and Arizona year-round. That's just one way to think of it. Last summer, in June, in July, do you recall those 100,000 people reported to have been killed? Now, according to the Association of Pool and Spa Professionals, we're professionals, damn it, there are 10.4 million residential pools and a little over 300,000 public swimming pools. Okay, let's take the yearly death figures and realize that over 30 years, by the numbers, over 30 years, every pool in America will have had a drowning in it, on average. So if you live in a home with a 30-year mortgage, you were there the whole time, you got to figure out which year you'd have had your drowning. Or if you didn't have your drowning, which your neighbors had two drownings in their pool. During the entirety of the Vietnam War, there were 58,000 Americans killed. So swimming pools, each year, according to Dr. Phil, kill six times as many Americans as the Vietnam War did in its entirety. Now, of course, the number went unchecked. The argument, after all, was so strong that details schmitels, but the actual number of swimming pool deaths in America, a little bit lower. All drowning deaths, not 360,000, about 3,500. That is uh, not including boating. I saw a set of figures for boating. It was 3,868 from 2000 or 1999 to 2010. 
There was a more recent data set that put the number at 35, 36 fatal unintentional drownings, but that was non-boating so hard to coordinate the boating stats and the non-boating stats. We do know that bathtubs are especially dangerous for people under the age of one and over the age of 85. Overall, bathtubs, 50% fewer drownings than swimming pools. But you add it all up and you find that Dr. Phil was off by the very least off by 10,000%, probably a little closer to being off by 15 or 20,000%. And what he did with that data, flawed though it was, was even more worthless. In fact, you could argue that it was even worse. The analysis of the flawed data was even worse and more egregious than the flaws of the data. But I defer to Dr. Phil. He is an expert, at least on picking a jury. At least he knows that. He knows how to correctly select a panel of 12,000 angry men. On the show today, I spiel about a public vigil in New York, New York State, that a mayor didn't stop, and a gridlock protest in Lansing, Michigan, in which the governor was asked to stop her policies. And you know what? While we're talking about the capital of Michigan, Lansing, what about talking about that city's second largest employer after the government? Michigan State University has moved to online learning entirely. The campus almost abandoned. The 10,000 employees, unsure what their college is going to look like in the future. Like a lot of college presidents, Samuel L. Stanley has tough, tough choices to make. Unlike a lot of most or almost any others, he is also an infectious disease specialist. So Dr. Stanley and I talk learning, budgeting, safety, the SATs, and the NCAAs. That is all up next. When you think of what a major university is, it's a lot of things. It's a corporation. It's a a very important civic institution. It's an employer. It's also a means of housing. Think about how a university might contend with the pandemic. Think about now how a major state university whose athletic budget depended on, say, the NCAA tournament might contend. And I'll throw an extra wrinkle or interesting tidbit about the state university we're going to talk about, Michigan State. Its president has a background in infectious diseases. That man's name is Samuel L. Stanley. He is the president of Michigan State University. Hello. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. How does your background, how did it inform you? I would imagine that you came into the pandemic or were perhaps aware of what was going on in Wuhan. And unlike other learned people who believe science, you didn't have to be told what an R-naught number was. You maybe even had heard of hydrochloroquine because it's a malaria drug. So maybe your other university presidents didn't know that stuff and you do, but are there any other differences, just given your background, how you think you might be approaching these difficulties different than either even a smart, informed university president with a background in, say, French lit? So it's a great question. And, you know, I'll go back to when I first heard about what was happening in Wuhan. And I thought about, obviously, what had happened previously with coronavirus outbreaks. This was really looked like it was going to be the third of what have been two previous major outbreaks of coronavirus, as one was, of course, SARS-CoV and the other was MERS-CoV. 
And as I looked at what was happening, my initial thought was, you know, this would be taken care of, that, you know, through strict quarantine and contact tracing, um, particularly in, in, in China, where they've had experience before with SARS, that this would be controlled. And of course, I proved to be, you know, really incorrect in that assumption. And so as I watched things progressing there, it became clear to me that this was something beyond um, what we'd seen in those two diseases, both of which were severe diseases. But this was beyond that because it was clearly much more transmissible and clearly could not be contained, at least at that time, by those kind of conventional standard public health methods. So that's when I became pretty concerned about what would happen if this got into the United States. Maybe perhaps earlier than some, I was thinking about what kind of consequences there might be um, when it did come. And when it arrived in Washington state, that really was, I think, the wake-up call for everybody. And I think universities around the country really started to prepare for it in much greater ways. That moment when the University of Washington went ahead and flipped the switch and went from in-person online learning, I think, also was really transformative for education at that point. Well, it wasn't a wake-up call for everyone, as we know. In terms of the decisions, you're a state school, but you run the school, and you're not going to be dictatorial, but is it ultimately your call or a uh, politician, a public servant's call as to whether your school would be open and when it might open again? It was definitely, it was my call, of course, in consultation with senior leadership and with our board of trustees, who've who've really been very supportive. They're elected board of trustees, so that's uh, unique. For the first time, there had been cases reported in Michigan. And I felt that the fact that we had now new cases, two new cases in Michigan, was enough for me to prompt that we should go ahead and go to completely online learning, basically take our faculty and staff out of the classrooms, eventually send our students home and do everybody working remotely. All of that in the period of about, you know, four or five days, basically, to to get accomplished. But they were very supportive of the decision, but ultimately it was mine to make, but obviously with a lot of consultation to my team as well. A lot of colleges made a similar decision sending the students home. So there's one component of it. You have to make sure that everyone has housing. There are probably some uh, students at your school who had housing situations that are indeterminate at home. And of course, you have to pay attention to that. But there was another criticism that I thought was interesting, which is that we don't know, especially with young people, they might have it, they might be asymptomatic. It could have been the case that what we were essentially doing was sending carriers, dispersing them far and wide to different communities, which could have had a negative consequence. Did you think of that? And what did you do to forestall that? I I did think about it. And I think it was one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to do it early on. Um, at that point in yeah. time, there had only been two cases, as, as we said before, reported in Michigan. Both of those were traced to uh, international travel so that you at least didn't have a, a clear-cut indication that there was widespread community spread at that point in time based on the fact that both of them had a clearly traceable reason to have had coronavirus early on. But I felt it was safer for all concerned if students were going to shelter at home from this point of view. Now, we didn't force people to leave the dorm, so we actually allowed people to stay who needed to stay. As you implied, we had some people who were international students who couldn't get home. We had some people who consider Michigan State University their home. This is where they live, graduate students, and so on. So no one was forced to leave, but we encourage people essentially to go home. Are there still residents there? Yes. Yeah, we still have um, 
roughly somewhat less than a thousand students um, still on campus. Again, a number of those graduate students who really live in apartments, so this is their home, um, and probably a couple hundred students who still haven't gone home. We're still in the semester right now, so we haven't had finals exams, for example. Some of them may have social situation that make it difficult for them to get home. They may not have internet um, where they are, and so we really didn't feel we could turn our back on those students, and so we did keep the dormitories open for them. Right, right. I mean, Michigan's, a, I mean, the Upper Peninsula and large swaths of it are, are rural. It's a very rural state, or some students could come from the inner city, no internet. But are they in different dorms, which would be good for distancing, but bad for, say, energy? Or how did you reorganize them in terms of their living conditions? Yeah, so, so we have been gradually reducing the number of dorms we have open. So we went from about 12,500 students down to the numbers I've just mentioned. Now we started to close some buildings, but we're able to maintain good social distancing for those who are still there. We have done, made some efforts to keep them spread apart. Now, Michigan State, I think it was last year, crossed the threshold of a billion dollars in just uh, revenue from student fees. The budget of your university, the expenditures are about $1.4 billion, and uh, some portion of that, 20%, comes from the state, but most of it is students paying. Have you done projections? How much do you expect to be able to charge? And and we should note that you're taking a pay cut and professors are taking a pay cut. But what does this look like it's going to do to the budget? So let me break it into 2020 and 2021. So our 2020 fiscal year ends at the end of June. And I'd say we're probably about a 50 to $60 million reduction from that. Um, some of that is related to you know revenue from tuition. A lot of that is related to the room and board issues and dining issues because as we closed down, we did refund essentially for students a proportion of what they'd paid for their room and board. So there were costs associated with that. We've still needed to keep people on um, to help care for the students we have. So that's been something where we've lost money. Athletics, as you mentioned, uh, has lost some money associated with the NCAA tournament and the Big Ten tournament, particularly in basketball, have been the main sources of losses there. And then there's been closing of, you know, summer abroad programs, some spring programs that we had scheduled have been canceled as well. So it's about a $50 million roughly cost there. 2021 is, is hard to say. Our deposits, so if you look at students who plan to come to Michigan State University, are about at the same level for in-state, maybe slightly higher than they were last year. Um, Our domestic out-of-state, so these are, you know, the states in the U.S., are also about the same as they were last year. But international students are a real issue for us, and particularly with the visa issues as they stand now. And again, of course, just the effect of the virus. There's declines in our deposits there, and that's an area where we may take a pretty significant financial hit. Yeah, and can you raise tuition? It's seems like many students will be applying for financial aid. Will all those sources be there? I mean, there are a lot of unknowns, but yeah. Yeah. So so we want to really work to maintain financial aid. That's really important to us. Um, And that's obviously important to a group of our students. And, And we appreciate some of the money that came in the CARES Act. We're looking forward to getting that check. You know, which will provide yes, some help to the students. We all are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, to some help to the students um, who are in need right now. Um, I think I'll be going to the board uh, in the next few days um, to talk about tuition increases. But given what's happening fiscally around Michigan and every other state in the union, and the pressure that's going to be on students and families, it's really hard to imagine that we would want to do that at this point in time. Let's talk about sports for a little bit, and I don't want to 
make it seem like this is the most important consideration of a university. But I know that you were on uh, key NCAA committees in the past and obviously of a Big Ten school. Hey, of a school that could have won the March Madness tournament this year, although why is this year different from every other year? Michigan State's so good. But usually the NCAA gives schools hundreds of millions of dollars and it's split up. And with small schools like Central Michigan, I mean, this is the lifeblood of their entire athletics department. Michigan State makes a lot of money from football, and we'll talk about that in a second. But they also, from what I understand, everyone in the Big Ten kind of splits up those payments. So the fact that you didn't get the full, what was it, what would it be, two and a half million dollars didn't have that big of an impact on your school? Some of that money is deferred so that you don't see it all in one year, essentially. And, you know, it's dependent upon how far teams go in the tournament, how many teams you have in the tournament generates, how much revenue right. you generate for the conference. Um, but there certainly was a hit associated with it. And I agree with you about us winning the championship. I think there was one virtual championship that was won and Michigan State beat Kansas in the final. Yeah, in that yeah I, I saw that one, but it was run by the Detroit News, wasn't yeah, it? I see. I see. Well, <laughs> well, thank, you, thank you for clarifying that and, and popping my balloon. Um, but it was incredibly disappointing. And of course, for the, for the students, as well. And, um, you know, we, we had an amazing story for our team uh, with Cassius Winston and the loss of his brother and the way the team came back from that. And so it was, it was really a, a great human interest story. And we were kind of sorry it ended where it did. But nothing will take away from, you know, the, the season they had, which was pretty spectacular. Uh, some schools, University of Cincinnati cut its men's soccer program. Other schools are cutting full teams because if listeners don't know, other than football and in many cases basketball, most teams lose money and the football team can float the rest of the other teams because budgeting is done within the athletic department. But for a lot of schools, the lack of revenue from the gate and the NCAA means that programs will be cut. Is that something Michigan State is considering? So we'll certainly have to look at that. Um, football uh, does drive a lot of the revenue for other sports, um, just as you said, through ticket sales and through the Big Ten television um, contract that provides a lot of that revenue. Um, we have great fans. Um, they're very loyal. My guess is, you know, I'm, I've already had people tell me I'm going to buy a season ticket whether there's a season or not. Um, so that's pretty amazing that people are willing to do that. Um, but um, it will be a challenge. And it is, as you said, puts pressure on other sports as well, which are dependent on some of the money for football. So our athletic director is going through and looking at what our options are here. We're trying to find ways we can conserve dollars. And of course, there's a lot of conversation around the Big Ten is how one might do some of these sports, but that's a challenge. So the mayor of New York and Los Angeles, the mayors on Wednesday said, don't expect there to be any professional sports in our cities until 2021. I don't know why Los Angeles would be much different from, say, Detroit or Lansing. There's an outbreak in Lansing. You're a county or two over from Wayne County where there are 12,000 cases. So if they're right, if Garcetti is right, no sports in their city, and that will be dictated by the pandemic, should a place where they rely on Big Ten football have the realistic or serious worry that that could apply to them? Sure. And I think, again, you know, uh, we're really always going to be focused on the safety of our students, our faculty, staff, and in the case of these events, our fans. 
and many of whom are alumni and neighbors. And so, uh, you know, we're going to do what we think is is in the interest of uh, public health and safety. That's the primary thing we're thinking about. We're obviously planning for the possibility of something happening, maybe some amendments to start seasons later and so on. But we're also looking at the possibility that it won't happen as well. And we'll, we'll, we'll continue to do that. For the incoming class of, I want to get my uh, years right here. I think it would be 2025. Anyway, the kids who are high school juniors now. Yeah. Have you considered dropping an SAT or ACT requirement? Yes, we have. Uh, I think it is going to be very difficult, essentially, for for them potentially to do this. And uh, so we are looking at it for the incoming class, potentially. It seems to me that would be an interesting natural experiment. I mean, if you allow one group of kids in without this standardized test and they perform just as well, maybe that will tell you something about the usefulness of standardized tests for all other classes. I agree, and I think that's a a smart way to think about it. Then again, if they don't perform well, the implication would be, I guess, go back to the test, but I I guess I would feel a little sorry for those kids. Yeah, I didn't mind the SAT, so... so, What else? What am I not even considering that you think about every day? What else is occupying your brain or threat matrix on a daily basis? I I think everything you've been covering, Mike, I think it really has to do with how do we um, kind of, what are we going to be able to safely do? And how do we sequence that in a way that makes sense? So, for example, in our in our institution, um, probably the first thing we're going to return to is research. Um, right now, we have restrictions on the research we're doing. We've restricted it to what we consider essential research. This is stuff that might involve, you know, related to coronavirus, for example, uh, involves work to develop ways to, you know, decontaminate masks uh, so they can be reused again. We're doing all this kind of work on campus, and that work is going on. But other forms of research, which may not be quite is relevant to these issues um, are kind of on a pause and people are writing grants and, you know, doing reading research and, you know, writing their theses and so on. Um, And so I think, you know, we're really working hard to figure out when things lift a little bit, when we think things are, are more under control, how do we get those researchers back safely? What do we need to do in terms of their personal protection? Um, what do we need to do in terms of changing the configuration of our laboratories to make it safer for people to do research? So we're trying to think of that. And then we're thinking about, for sure, how we improve our online learning. Um, and so how do we improve that? And really, in, in the eventuality that we have to go there in the fall um, to do that primarily, our way of teaching, um, how do we make sure that that's really rewarding for students? and makes them really still have an experience that's unique to Michigan State. So, And then, how do you get the social interactions that students crave? And how does one give the support for mental health and other things we've been doing and delivered effectively? Those have all been things we've been thinking about. And I think we've made progress just this semester, but we're considering how we do it better if we need to in the future. And so I think it'll be additive to what we're trying to do, but not a replacement. Samuel L. Stanley is the president of Michigan State University. Thanks so much. Mike, my pleasure. Thank you. And now the spiel. President Trump today tweeting, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan. This in response to protests held in those states, asking the governors there to relax social distancing rules. This is how they will stand up and prove to an unthinking, unfeeling virus that we will not be intimidated. In Lansing, protesters took to the Capitol building on Wednesday with this chant in support of their claims of openness and free mobility. Lock her up, lock her up. That was reported by the Washington Post. WDIV Channel 4 Detroit was interviewing a protester named Tracy Cross from White Cloud. 
It should not stop people's lives from going forward, you know. I don't know, actually. I don't know how to process the idea that the virus should not stop people's lives from going forward. Shouldn't? Sure. Structurally, though, that's that's what it does. That's what the virus does. That's why we're concerned about the virus, precisely because it stops people's lives. Going forward, it will stop people's lives, especially if everyone does what you say, Mr. Cross, swarm back to work without careful plans being made to socially distance, to contact trace, to suppress the virus. Cross, like most protesters captured on camera, was not wearing a mask. They were protesting in cars, honking horns, blocking traffic, and even blocking an ambulance as part of Operation Gridlock. But there were some who were wearing masks. Joe Dart was one of them. He was interviewed by Lansing's Channel 10, which said that Mr. Dart had actually recently gotten over the coronavirus. I couldn't hardly breathe. Had a really bad time with it, but I survived it. And uh, I'm here to fight for our country again if needed. We we can all wear our mask and go about our business. Well, easy for you to say you have the antibodies. I am not taking my virology advice from you. But should we take our civil engagement advice from Michigan's governor, Governor Whitmer, who was dismissed by President Trump, but then in a press conference today, dismissed President Trump's call to liberate Michigan as unhelpful in these times. She said this of the protesters. Well, first and foremost, I totally respect people's uh, right to dissent and to voice their disagreement with decisions I've made. My hope is that, number one, people consider voicing their dissent in other ways. But if they are going to be traveling, uh, that they observe those best practices and keep themselves and others safe. Now, I have to say, it's certainly sensible advice to tell people don't gather to protest, especially when the thing you're protesting is designed to save your life in case you gather. But isn't part of the assessment the underlying point of the protest? See, I thought Operation Gridlock was stupid. I wondered if it should go on, but I am unsympathetic to its goals. Governor Whitmer obviously is unsympathetic to its goals. What if you were maybe a little more sympathetic? Would you tell a protest or a gathering you'd have to disperse? An interesting case, not totally the same, but interesting and similar occurred in Rochester, New York. Now, Rochester is very much under Governor Andrew Cuomo's shutdown order, but a few days ago, 100, or by some reports, 200 people gathered on a street corner to mourn the life of a young man who was shot to death, which is a more common occurrence in Rochester than certainly they would like. Now, asked about it in a press conference two days later, this is what the mayor, lovely Warren, had to say. So, for us, you know, when we look at this, we knew that uh, they were going to gather somewhere. Um, we wanted to make sure that we kept an eye on it. We wanted to make sure that it was peaceful. We also knew that people were making a conscious decision, even with social distancing going on. But to insert ourselves into the middle of that and to put our officers or even potentially those people that were there in harm's way was not something, a decision that we thought was needed at that point in time. Going forward, because they've already gathered, they've already mourned, we will tell people that they cannot gather at that site um, in that way any any longer. Okay, so no regathering. Good. Do not regather. But a few Rochester citizens, including members of the police department, were not happy with the mayor and the police chief's decision 
So local news pursued the issue. News Channel 10 NBC's Jennifer Lukey asked the mayor this. A couple of days removed, I'm wondering in hindsight whether you would have made any different decisions. Let's be very clear about um, about something here. And this whole thing of quote unquote allow, uh, nobody called and asked for permission to do this. It was something that was already occurring. Oh, I understand the city didn't organize the vigil. They literally didn't permit it, but that doesn't mean they didn't permit it. The mayor apparently disagrees with that because she called the charge of allowing the vigil yellow journalism. And she explained, I got a call from the chief saying that this was occurring and, um, you know, should he send officers in to break this up? In other words, should he allow it? And the answer was yes. Good choice. Mm-hmm. The mayor explained that these are people who are grieving, who needed to mourn. She personally walked over near the gathering to observe it but then decided it could continue, or at least the police shouldn't break it up. Don't want to use the word allow. The similarities between the Rochester protest and the Lansing protest are right there. But in one, you have an elected official sympathetic to a gathering defending its continuing. In Michigan, you have an official unsympathetic to the gathering criticizing it. Now, the difference is the governor of Michigan also didn't intercede to shut down the gridlock protests. And I take her, lovely Warren, great name, I know, take her at her word that, and her assessment seems plausible, that an intervention might have escalated things and led to more friction and a bad outcome. An intervention might have caused dispersal, but if it didn't, what would you get? A melee, arrests, and that would be bad for a number of reasons, including it would not include social distancing. And of course, there is a racial component to both of these protests. All but two of the protesters I saw in footage of hundreds of protesters in Lansing were white. There was one black guy in a MAGA hat up there in Lansing. The Rochester residents, the ones holding the vigil, are black. The mayor of Rochester and the police chief, also African-American. Rochester is a majority-minority city. In Michigan, there was a Tea Party flavor and, shall we say, some coded sentiment to their rally. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. We have employees. We have paychecks to issue. We have bills to pay. They're unwillingly on unemployment. The implication being that most or at least some people want to be on unemployment. Okay. Lansing is an Ingham County, which has, as of 6 p.m., this recording, 300 cases and six deaths. The three counties of Metro Detroit have 16,000 cases of COVID and almost 2,000 deaths. African Americans make up 40% of the state's deaths, but just 14% of the state's population. It all factors in. It all plays a role. It all affects perceptions and decisions and an analysis of what is the most urgent and who is the most expendable. The coronavirus and the response to it lays bare a few basic precepts of America, like how we protect our fellow citizens and who we think of as worthy of protection. And we say these things over and over again with our actions, our policies, our protests, and ultimately our votes.
And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST's associate producer. She would like to request a retroactive SAT waiver or at least a home testing setup where she truly swears not to use a dictionary. For only a knave would peculate as someone who is indecisive might act with irresolution. Daniel Schrader, just producer, not only had Michigan State to win it all, he had Sparty plus the over and the Jayhawks teased down to 24 in a three-team parlay and the dude is not shutting up about it. The gist. Another interesting stat. That swimming pool fatality number would be 360,000, but for floaties. Floaties. Ask for them by name. Sponsored by the U.S. Floaty Council and the Committee to Promote Inflatable Alligators. Oomperu depru and thanks for listening. <laughs>